0: This episode of That's Total Mom Sense is sponsored by Sambacall. Fall is upon us, and you know what that means. Cooler weather, layers, and of course, the kids heading back to school. Have you checked off all the items on your never-ending list? New clothes, notebooks, pencils, brand new backpack? The kids want it all. But have you thought about how to keep them healthy when they're heading back to school? That's where Sambacall comes in. My kids and I recently started taking Sambacall every day to help support our immune systems so we can keep doing what we need to do. Sambacol is made from premium European black elderberries, which are natural sources of powerful antioxidants and key vitamins like A, C, and E. They help support a healthy immune system and help you power through your day. What's so great about Sambacol is that they have tons of different ways to get your daily helping of black elderberry, like syrups, gummies, chewable tablets, drink powders, capsules, and more. They have products made just for kids, too. My three kids love the Sambacol Black Elderberry Gummies. They love the flavor and remind me to give it to them when we're rushing out the door during drop-off. Make a healthy immune system part of your back to school strategy this year with Sambacall. My listeners can receive 15% off their next order of $9.99 or more at SambacallUSA.com by using my promo code MomSense15 at checkout. That's 15% off your order of $9.99 or more at Sambacall, spelled S A M B U C O L, USA.com. And remember, use code MOMSENSE15 at checkout. And here's a pro tip. Save the promo code and the website address in your notes app. I know you're busy, too busy to remember this promo code and sort through the episodes to find it. So it's
1: MOMSENSE15 and the website
0: is sambucolusa.com.
1: Hi, I'm Sonia Dave and you're listening to me on That's Total Sense. And my experience on the interview was fantastic. So I was having a conversation with one of my dear friends, but I really feel like if you tune in, you'll feel like you're getting some insight, some compassion, some learning and some wisdom and some fun. Hi there, it's
0: Kanika. Get ready for another season of That's Total Sense, where I interview global thought leaders on their life stories, the legacy they're passing on to their kids, and of course, their mom sense and dad sense superpower. It's me, Bobby Brown. Can't wait to share my story. Hey, I'm Daphne Oz. Hi, I'm Shawnee Darden. Hi, this is Chris Salin. Hi, I'm Bob Michelle Milan. Hi, this is Tony LeRoy. Hi, I'm Shannon Lee. Hi, I'm Farnish Tarabi. Hi, this is Michael Perry, founder of Maple. And you're listening to me on That's Total Mom Sense. It's our mission to be inclusive. So we're having dads pull up a seat at the table. Tune in to my new monthly segment, What Matters Most with Maple, featuring my co-host, Michael Perry, tech founder and devoted father of two. Thank you to my brand partners, community, and you, yes, you, for making this podcast possible. Episodes release every Thursday. Join my tribe by logging on to thatstotalmomsense.com and subscribe wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. As parents, we all know that the burnout is real, and I feel that those coming from immigrant families and, in my experience, South Asian backgrounds, have a more nuanced view on all the things that it takes to keep a family together. And so I am humbled to have my friend, Sonia Dave, join me on that Total Mom Sense today, Soumya Dave is a writer, psychiatrist, and mental health advocate. She's the author of two novels, Well-Behaved Indian Women and What a Happy Family. Well-Behaved Indian Women was selected as the summer's fix by the New York Times Book Review and optioned for a television series by CBS Studios. What a Happy Family was the July Good Housekeeping Magazine book club pick. Somia is also a frequent contributor to NBC News, where she discusses a variety of mental health topics. She is a practicing psychiatrist and professor of narrative medicine at Mount Sinai. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband Samir and their son Sahil, and she is currently working on her third novel about motherhood and ambition. Samia, welcome to the
1: show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I love your podcast, so I'm excited to chat.
0: Yes, thank you. And I wanted to share a, a little backstory about how we met. We uh, were connected because we're part of the same you know, South Asian online community. I feel like we have all these virtual friends we made back in 2020. I just want to tell you how meaningful your friendship is to me. I'm so glad that I have you in my corner and the fact that we hit it off, we met at one of Zibi Owen's uh, salons at our home, and continue to check in with each other via text or email. It's so wonderful how in our adult life, we can find someone to connect with on such a deep level. And it's this fast friendship that you feel like you've known this person your whole life. So I'm I'm so thankful to you.
1: Oh, I feel the same way. And I especially feel like as moms, as parents, that is so important to have that. And so it, it just feels so meaningful. And I'm really grateful for you.
0: Well let's start with your childhood because I think that's obviously the best place to get a lay of the land and really understand your perspective. What was it like growing up the fact that you actually went back to your childhood home in Atlanta during the pandemic with your husband and son and you know stayed in your childhood bedroom must have been surreal at best so what was it like for a young Sonia
1: it was quite surreal that's exactly right and growing up it was so funny i think i had a very clear sense of who i was and what i enjoyed doing and also what i didn't enjoy doing so i was a girl who always was lost in a book i could be found in a corner reading at any given time including at parties i also really loved medicine my my dad's a physician and he would come home just talking about how much he really loved his work and seeing patients and i think hearing those stories growing up really had an impact on me so I always knew I wanted to be a physician and an author, but it was interesting hearing people after I would say I was in high school and then beyond who would tell me you have to pick one. And so I think that sometimes if we go back to what we enjoyed as a kid, we might be able to get back in touch with a part of who we were. And I'm not saying that means that we all change careers or anything like that, but I do think there's something so special about what we were drawn to when we were younger and what that can mean for us as adults. So I grew up you know, pursuing both of those fields and then thought, okay, I have everything together. I'm on the right track. And then of course, the pandemic hits us all, all around the world, and I had a three-month-old son and thought that I was exiting my so-called fourth trimester. So I was really ready to enter the world as a new mom and start this new part of my life. And then the world went into lockdown, and my husband, son, and I went to Atlanta. We were in the same house as my siblings, parents, and grandparents for a year and a half. It was supposed to be one to two months because I'm sure everyone listening remembers we didn't know how long things were <laughs> It was, and I feel like all of us were just living in this uncertainty that was so prolonged. And so to do that as a new mom, which I think is the time of the greatest transformation emotionally, physically, mentally, and then to be in my parents' house really was surreal. I remember there was this one moment when I was cradling my son. We had that Snoo bassinet, you know that it's yeah. the, for anyone listening. It's the one where you know you can press a button and it kind of sways baby back and forth. And so I was putting him in his little smart bassinet and then the white noise machine was on and then right next to the white noise machine there were these journals from when i was in middle school and high school and i just had all my angst poured out in these journals <laughs> right next to my baby and then my mom was calling me from downstairs telling me what to eat and so <laughs> I, remember, I don't know how old i am right now am i in my think no. <laughs> am i in high school what is going on so talk about a time of just facing all of your identities it really it really was then
0: and then when was, I guess, the, the point for you that you felt like you embraced our culture being Indian, that it was like, no, I am, I am this and I'm going to own this identity of mine.
1: You know, it's interesting. I always was so proud of being South Asian, of being Indian, of being Gujarati. I was so proud of all of that. And my parents really, really just integrated it into our daily lives from, from as far as I can remember. And in Atlanta where I'm from, there is such a rich, diverse South Asian community. So even exposure wise, I felt like it was always around me. What I realized was how stories are so impactful. In showing us what we're allowed to be in the world and what we're allowed to see in the world. So I didn't put the two and two together until I'd say I was in my last year of high school and then going into college when I struggled to find books that had people who looked like my family and friends who looked like me. And that was when I thought, okay, you know, actually the stories that we take in, whether it's in books, whether it's on screens, wherever it is, those are the ones that tell us which, which stories matter in the world, right? And who gets mm-hmm. to tell the stories, who gets to be in the stories. And so I think that. Need to show my culture and have it integrated into storytelling really came later, even though the pride was always there.
0: And one thing that I love that you challenged was you know, in your seventh grade journal, you said, I'm going to be a psychiatrist and a writer. And here you are doing exactly that. How can us as parents be attuned to what I feel like middle school is just this best coming of age time? So I think this is probably the time our kids are going to go through it too. But when they have that conviction, at that age, how do we nurture that? And like, yeah, you are going to become that. Like, don't let anyone tell you different.
1: I think actually exactly what you said is so beautifully articulated. You're such a good speaker. So you have like the wisdom within the question. I love it. And, and I I do think there's something to, when, when we're younger, if there's something that we're really interested in, if we're really gravitating towards it and there's this natural curiosity, I think to have that curiosity supported And to have it seen with compassion by a parent, by a caregiver, by a teacher, I think that is so, so powerful. So I remember it was in my English classes, actually, that my teachers told me, keep reading, keep writing. This is worthwhile for you. And and they were the ones who really taught me this is not a frivolous use of time at all. This is really meaningful. And my mom is also a big reader. And so I grew up seeing her just read books. You know, she would sit on the couch and she would open whatever book it was she was into. And she likes a variety of genres. And I'd see her doing that. So I also think modeling is really powerful. And if mm-hmm. our kids see us doing things that bring us joy, that we're curious about, that we're passionate about, I think that also has a really powerful impact as well. So I hope to even show my son that through modeling. This is also me giving myself a pat on the back for when I'm reading and he's wanting me to play with him. And I'm like, I'm modeling. Right. <laughs> yeah. And you grab <got> your book. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes. yes. Oh, I love that. Tell us about how you and Samir
1: met because it's such a sweet story. So it's very embarrassing. It, uh-huh. He was in this all male acapella group. We knew Penn Masala. We know. <laughs> and I have been a fan of theirs since I was in middle school. So they've been around since the nineties and they're comprised for anyone listening, who's not familiar. They're comprised of students from UPenn and they usually fuse a Hindi song with an English song to make a fusion acapella track out of them. They were doing concerts all around the country by the time I was in high school and I was just fangirling everywhere. They came to Atlanta twice. I went and like shouted the whole time. And then when I was in college at Georgia Tech, I was on the dance team there and my very last show I was in, it was our holy show they came as a guest performance, and so I saw him on stage and thought he was really cute. So I took a picture of him on my Casio camera. If anyone remembers those, before yes. do it. Oh my gosh! He had a matching camera actually. So we met after and took a selfie. I, like before a selfie was a thing on his Casio camera. And, but I went and introduced myself backstage and then we really just hit it off immediately. And, and it's been actually that way since. So it was one of those things where when I would hear about people meeting that way and staying together, I never believed it. And then, and then when I was inside of it, I thought, okay, wow, it does sometimes happen this instant. We were long distance for eight years before wow. we got married. And then I moved to New York for my residency. And he had always been living here since graduating from college. So now we've been here since, and this is our home. But yeah, it's it's so interesting. That same spark, people are probably going to be like, this is so cheesy. But that same spark and wonder I felt towards him the moment we met, I still I still feel that way. And I, again, I didn't think that was possible. I really skipping
0: ahead to... When you were writing uh, Well-Behaved Indian Women, it was a 10-year-long process for you, which just to fathom that, I mean, wow. You know, here you are living at your career as a psychiatrist and, you know, there's residency. There's so much going on. And then, you know, you had uh, Sahil at the book's release. So tell us about that journey of writing and seeing it through fruition.
1: I was very presumptuous when I had the thought of writing a book, you know, and and again, going back to what you were saying before, I really wanted to write it because I struggled so hard to find books with South Asian women going through their daily issues with their families, with their careers, those types of things. And I thought, oh, since I'm such an avid reader, once I have an idea for a book, it'll be on the shelves in a year. And It was such an important learning lesson for me that that's really not the way it works at all. And I I had to learn how to actually craft a book. I had to learn how to get an agent. I had to learn how to have a publisher behind me. And that process for me involved 200 rejections. And over, over those 10 years, because I was truly learning how to write through this book and the initial drafts of this book. And what I realized along the way was that up until that point, up until I really took my writing seriously, I was so used to doing things that, that gained other people's approval, whether that was getting good grades or going on the path that was expected of me, that this was the first time I was really defying those expectations and I was failing. And I was, I was seeking out failure because I was getting rejected and then going back at it again. And what was really important for me, I think personally, was seeing failure as an opportunity instead of something that should bring shame, because I used to associate it with such a shameful part of being and, and something that we should avoid as much as possible if we can. And, and something that says something bad about us, but I see it now as something that's such a gift and that can teach us so much. And, and it's an essential step in actually getting to many of the places that I hope to go.
0: Yeah. Well, tell us the synopsis of the book for those who haven't read it.
1: Oh, sure. So Well-Behaved Indian Women is about three generations of women. So Nani, the grandmother, Nandani the mom, and then Simran, the daughter, and how they navigate struggles in their marriages, and their careers. The book initially started off about Simran, who's the young, she's the daughter in the story, and her engagement to her high school and college boyfriend, Kunal, and what happens when she meets this writer she's a big fan of, and and how he kind of throws a wrench into her personal and professional plans. But as I was writing the book and getting rejected I started writing a perspective from Nandini her mom's perspective and about just being a physician in in the time that she was training in and the racism and sexism she encountered. And what it's like for a woman to actually walk away from all of the expectations put on her as a mother and a wife to really take that next step in her career. You know, it's interesting because I first thought I wanted to just write a book about planning a big, fat, facey wedding. And then when I was in residency, I was helping learn how to deliver a baby. It was my first time learning how to deliver a baby. And I, as a med student, and when I went to go check on the new mom hours later, this happened in the middle of the night. And I went several hours later and I was in my scrubs, my hair was up probably looking like a beehive on my head. And I went in to check on the mom and she had family members over already there to meet the baby. And one of the family members stood up and they said, oh, the lady who who takes out the trash already came, you can leave. And so shocked and taken aback. And I wish, I wish I could say truthfully that, oh, I spoke up and I said, you can't talk to me that way and all this stuff. I didn't. I just I I ran out of there and I went into back into the med student room they had. And I just started writing from the perspective of a woman who dealt with this all the time in medicine. And that's how Nandini came to life, actually. So at that point, I wrote two Nandini chapters and I submitted the book the week before I got married to try to find an agent again. And I got all rejections the day before my wedding. Like I got five in a row the day before my wedding. But all five of them said, I really liked these two chapters with the mom do you have any thoughts on including more? And so she actually got integrated much later. So just if anybody out there is creating anything, I think that was one of the biggest lessons I learned is that sometimes insights come to us through the process and the journey itself. And that's why the journey matters so much, maybe even more than the outcome.
0: And now on to What a Happy Family. I love how just even the title is so snarky and it sounds like something an Indian auntie would say <laughs> as she's peering <laughs> into a family's life from the outside. When you think of our South Asian background and mental health and therapy uh, from the traditional sense, it's almost paradoxical. Would you ever put those two together? This like a South Asian uh, family that doesn't talk about their problems and isn't transparent about when they're feeling. That? Here you are juxtaposing the two and marrying them in such a profound way. So h- how did you even think to do that? And I know you know with your Expertise in psychiatry, of course, you're going to infuse that in, but for this community that doesn't talk about mental well being at all.
1: So, this might come as a surprise, but I did not realize there was a stigma surrounding mental health in our community until I was in high school because my parents, both my parents, were so open when mm-hmm. they talked about. Health. My my dad, he's a pain management physician, but he would tell me, he would say, Oh, this person, you know, if they experience more pain because they're depressed, it's because they have two illnesses. They have the physical illness and then they have their major depressive disorder. And that's another illness. So we have to treat both illnesses. And he said that I thought, oh yeah. And I heard this from when I was very young. And then my mom would also say that as well. And so I, I didn't realize until I was in high school and later that in our community this is not the way it usually is. And when I moved back home during the pandemic. I initially was writing my second book as a story about a woman going through psychiatry residency because I don't know if anyone else feels this way, but I love workbooks and I love shows that go through the workplaces too. Like, give me a good legal drama and I'm here. And so I thought, oh, let's do this for a woman in medicine training to be a psychiatrist. And then when I was at home, we were telling stories of vacations we went on as a family. And I was telling this one story of this trip we went on that I thought we had a really good time at and recalling some of the moments. And my brother and sister said, we had a terrible time. You bossed us around the whole time and you called all the shots. So none of us look back on that as a happy moment. Isn't it interesting how family often involves people living in the same space, but really taking away such different experiences and even kids in the same family get a different mother and a different father in the more traditional like family setups. And so it was those types of questions that came up from being around my family that made me want to see what it would be like for a family that presented so perfectly on the outside to really have to grapple with things they were keeping from each other about their emotional health.
0: Yes. Yeah. And tell us about this premise with Bina and her daughters, Natasha and Savani.
1: Sure. So I, it, this, this book follows the Joshi family who live in the suburbs of Atlanta. And after a scandal, they are all forced to really face different parts of themselves, within themselves, and then also with each other. And the book actually has perspectives from each family member. Primarily, it does focus on the women, but but there are some chapters from the brother, the dad, and the son-in-law. In the book and and it really ultimately is a book about how family can hurt us more than anyone, and they can also potentially heal us as well, if if everybody's willing to take certain steps.
0: Can you tell us why you gravitated towards fiction and novel writing versus memoir?
1: Ooh, I love that question. I grew up, you know, Sweet Valley High Babysitters Club. So I grew up reading fiction. Nonstop, And I always saw it as such a powerful way to get in the mind of someone different, mm. who have overlapping traits, um, but, but someone who was different and to really live through their life. And it was so interesting when I was in college, I found this article, I forgot where it was. And, and it talked about how reading fiction could increase empathy, because we could literally be in other people's shoes for the course of the story, people who were different uh, from us. And so I also felt like I could explore things that maybe I wasn't directly encountering in my own life, but I was hearing come up as themes through characters. So for example, when I was in my twenties, a big theme that came up with a lot of friends and with myself was what do we want to do with our lives? Where do we want our lives to go? And it was really this big set of questions. And so in Well-Behaved Indian Women, I have all of the characters asking that, but exploring it in ways I didn't personally see through anyone. So the theme influenced the character.
0: Now tell us about your third, which goes into motherhood and you know a mother's own
1: journey around identity and ambition. Sure. So uh, the third book has a working title, so not an official title yet. But it's about a new mom, Maya Patel, who's the daughter of motel owners, and she's also a startup founder and CEO of an eco-friendly toiletries brand. And she okay. follows her journey through both new motherhood and trying to run a company. So my husband works in tech, and he asked for quite some time. And I've been so fascinated by how you know female founders and leaders at these companies have a different experience than their male counterparts. And I think, by the way, that can be said for probably every single industry out there. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: In particular during a time when, when we were seeing the rise of so many female founders and then, and then the fall of some as well. And then still seeing that just such a small percentage of VC funding goes to female founded companies, just seeing all that, I thought, what would it be like for a South Asian woman grappling with that and, and really trying to make her mark in this world and also really trying to be a new mom and, and just own all of her identities. What's that like for her and how does she struggle and how does she manage those things?
0: Tell us about your motherhood journey.
1: So it has been by far the most transformative thing in my entire life. I think it's also forced me to face different parts of myself. And I didn't realize that becoming a mom really brought up so many things about myself, about the way I felt as a child about the way I felt with, with wanting to be a mom and my goals that I had. So for example, I think right before we we logged on, we were talking about being type A and maybe being perfectionist. Yeah. Nothing else in my life has made me face perfectionism more than motherhood, more <laughs> than motherhood, because things don't go according to plan. I had a really tough pregnancy. Um, I had the hyperemesis gravidarum so it's nausea vomiting. I had it for the full nine months. Oh and my then, goodness. Um, oh no. Okay, thank you. And then and then the birth process was a little stressful. And postpartum was a little stressful and the pandemic happened. And so I think it really was a blur of a time in so many different ways. But, but I did find that surrendering was such a big thing, having, having people to, to go to for support was absolutely integral, even if that came in the form of group texts from a friend, you know, and in the middle of the night chats with another mom who was up late feeding, being able to rely on family members. I never, I never appreciated that sense of community that couldn't come from so many different places until I came from a mom. And then really also having just an openness to whatever the day brings, instead of feeling like everything has to be so rigid and planned and scheduled. So I'm, I'm grateful. I think, I think it, my son has really helped me actually grow a lot more than he'll ever realize. And, and I hope to, to tell him that one day when he's able to understand that because he's given me so much.
0: What has been your experience when you're dealing with moms through the lens of a psychiatrist and mental health?
1: So I I think that the amount of support a mom receives is very correlated to how good she will feel about not only that transition to motherhood, but but even the day-to-day life of being a mom. And I think that when moms are the default parents and policies- Point towards that, when workplaces points towards that, we're providing a detriment to the entire family because the mom then carries so much of that load. And then she keeps becoming the default parent. And then it's a cycle that becomes very, very hard to break out of. I was just reading a study yesterday in one of the psychological journals that talked about how when parental leave was incorporated into certain countries, the divorce rates actually went down. And that's so interesting because. And it makes total sense, right? When when a person is holding that much stress, it will trickle over into everyone else. Of course, it will affect the partnership and the family system and everything. And so I just keep seeing everywhere, especially um, with women I speak to in the United States, that they deserve more support and they need more support. So I, I just hope that that's something we see in our time because... I think every mom I know is just handling so much. She's wearing a million hats. And that can only go on for so long. And of course, it's going to have an impact on emotional well being. Of course, it is.
0: I wanted you to share uh, about your organization, This Is For Her, that you and Samir started.
1: Sure. So, This Is For Her is a women's mental health nonprofit that my husband, mary and I started. And what we do is we partner with existing organizations that are already working with women and girls on the ground. And we've designed mental health workshops for them to incorporate with their work. And so we went to Uganda when I was in residency. It was a place I'd always wanted to visit. And uh, we visited with a bunch of nonprofits there that I had been really big fans of when I was in medical school. And when the leaders of those nonprofits found out that I was a psychiatrist in training, They asked for guides on how to talk about depression, how to talk about anxiety, because a lot of times there weren't even words for those emotions. Um, Mm -hmm. The mental health shortage is just so vast there. And so, and in many parts of the world. And so, so they asked for a guide and I said, I'll get one back to you once I come back to my program. And when I came back, nobody had anything. I thought, how is there not a simple guide for how to talk about our emotional health? How is that So I wrote it myself and then we went back the year after and did workshops with all these organizations. And then they, they do that as an ongoing process. And then we hope to just keep partnering with more and more workshops or more and more organizations that are looking for, looking for that emotional education to be incorporated.
0: Now I wanted to go into a segment called Auntie Said What? So the first thing is, what was one piece of advice that an auntie has given you that changed your life for the better?
1: So an auntie told me when I started dating my husband, I would say, oh my gosh, he's so great. He's so great. I don't, I mean, I'm not good enough for him. He's so great. And she pulled me aside and she said, I really like that you like him so much, but you need to not say anything that's putting yourself down because if you say it to yourself enough, you're going to start believing it. And I don't ever want you to tell yourself things that you're going to start believing. And I, I appreciated that so, so much because I think a lot of times we're told to be so humble and, you know, um, not really owning our power. And she told Yeah, me.
0: self-deprecating.
1: Yes, absolutely. And so I, I still hold that in my heart.
0: And what was something that an auntie told you that left you crushed, but you know, you got over it anyway.
1: So I think things relating to body image and weight have always been sensitive to me because I've grown up just seeing so much commentary on girls and women's bodies. And so when I was very early in my pregnancy, but no one knew I was pregnant, We went to a family friend's wedding and two different aunties came up to me and they said, You've lost so much weight, you won't be able to carry a baby. And they obviously they didn't know I was pregnant. I was, I would think I was six weeks pregnant or something. Oh my God. I didn't know, but to to not only say it and then tie it to that when I was I mean, it was just holy crap. crap. Yeah. Yeah. So I still have a two and a half year old son and I'm telling you this right now. So look at how I need to get over that. But still Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's
0: it still stings when you hear things like that when we have those encounters, what would your advice be? Like if you were to go back and change the scenario for yourself, what would you say?
1: So I think, and this is something that comes up in my practice a lot, I think having actually a ready-to-go line for when you feel like your boundary is crossed can be super Mm. helpful. So I one of my to go to lines actually is, I don't want to talk about my weight right now. I just don't want to talk about it. And then I pivot the conversation to something else. And it was very scary to start saying that at first, but I think there is something to having lines ready if we weren't used to setting those boundaries before. So you can just kind of go into your well and pull it out at the moment if it's needed.
0: Yes. Yes. I love that. We were just skip ahead 10, 15 years. What kind of auntie do you envision yourself when Sahil has friends or bringing home a partner or getting
1: married? <laughs> So I think I'll be really cool and accepting and fun. My husband thinks that that is not going to be true. <laughs> <laughs> he thinks I'm just such a doting mom that I'm just yeah. let go. And yeah, so it's very possible everything I'm about to say, I'm going to be a huge hypocrite when we actually do get there. But I, I hope I'm the kind where where he feels like, He can talk to me about what's going on, whether it's good, bad, embarrassing. And I hope that his friends feel like I can be someone they can turn to as well. That openness is really important for me that he feels like he can be him and all of, all of his sides and, and bring that.
0: What is a mom sense moment that you remember? And you know, by that you've, you've heard the podcast, it's, it's a moment that you trusted your intuition.
1: So last summer, almost exactly a year ago, we were walking in Dumbo by the bridge and Sahil was just a little lower energy than usual. And I told Samir, I said, we have to go home. And he said, why? And I said, I, we just have to get home. We got to go. We got to go. And we had walked 30 minutes from our apartment to get there and then suddenly to cut it off. And for me to just say it for no reason. And I said, I just have a sense about him. We just have to go. And then when we got home, he, we took his temperature. It was through the roof oh, No, and he, an hour later just fell asleep for the rest of the night. And, yes. and you know, Samir asked me later, how did you know? And I said, I actually don't know. There was (laughs) other sense in me that just took one look at his facial expression and his energy level felt like it was going down a little bit. And I just knew we had to get out.
0: Let's not forget our quote of the day. Is there a quote that you live by?
1: I'm I'm a quote fanatic, so mm-hmm. I love quotes. But one of my favorites is by Toni Morrison, and, and it's if there's a book that you want to read but it hasn't been written yet, then you must be the one to write it. Oh, and you've done exactly that. that. Thank you. That really guided me time and time again. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's now
0: time for Mom Hall, when we share products we love. Mom hall, its uh, just you know a fun segment on if there's any product that you've come across, uh, it could be an app, it could be you know in parenting space, mom space, whatever that it has been a game changer for you.
1: So there's there's yours this this podcast, yeah. there's Ajalvi Patel and her resources and her insights, her podcast, her book, I. Just love all of the material she creates. It's so, so educational and so wonderful. And then I just got this book because it just came out recently, but Dr. Becky's book, Good Inside, and about how it focuses on taking care of yourself as a parent in order to be a better caregiver. I just love that reframe. And so I'm, I love books, obviously, but a lot of the parenting books and the books towards kids. So Tejal's book and then and then Becky's books, I would say I just, I love.
0: Oh, that's so great! I love that you um, highlight that. And Sage, we love you. Uh, her book is Meditation for Kids, so and it's yeah, it's going to be the first of many, but very practical exercises for kids as young as two to do to focus on their breath and being in the present moment. And Dr. Becky is a sage. I mean, she's carrying us through from you know uh, babies and newborns to toddler parenting and beyond. And I think just her her insights are. They just make sense. You're like, wow, why would you, why would we not think like, why have we been hardwired as a society by others or by teachers in a different way?
1: Totally. I think she's done for me as a mom, what Eve Rodsky did for me as a partner where they named things, you know, they named things, they made the invisible visible Yes. But this is important. This is meaningful. We deserve to be valued for these things. And so I'm appreciative to, to all of these women for creating what they do.
0: Yes. Yes. And yeah. And big shout out to Eve as well. If you haven't read Fair Play or find your unicorn space, same thing. She's like the advocate for mothers and, you know, being able to live your authentic self and your identity and make sure you're not the one doing all the work at home. So,
1: and what is your legacy? I hope that it's in giving space, like creating stories of my own, but also creating space for other people to share their stories as well, whether that's in a therapy section, whether that's through artwork, whether that's through conversations in their communities. I just hope to be a force for storytelling in different ways. And so whatever small part I can play in that, I, I just would be so grateful to do that.
0: Tell us where our listeners can find you.
1: So I'm on Instagram and Twitter at SomiaJDave and at my website is SomiaDave.com.
0: Thank you, Somia. This was amazing. I'm so glad we got to chat and catch up even before this. And um, we got to hear your story because we love how you tell stories, but to to understand uh, where you're coming from and your perspective is that much more meaningful. And like I said in the beginning, I'm so thankful to have you as a friend and I will shout it from the rooftops as you're writing, as you're producing, all the things that you're doing that has your stamp on it. We want to know about it and we want to be part of it.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to my interview with Dr. Savya Dave. It was such a joy to hear her backstory and the fodder for her books and her third one on the way. I hope you got some enlightening takeaways from our chat. Tune into other episodes of That Soil Mom Sense wherever you get your podcasts. And now I'm actually posting episode highlights on YouTube, so check those out as well. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review the show. It helps a ton with the ever-changing algorithms. I created a guide to help you do this. You can just visit thatstotalmomsense.com backslash iTunes, and all the guidelines are there on how to leave a review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you have guests you think should be on the show your favorite celebrity, whatever that wish list looks like, I want to know because I want to make sure I'm bringing on those you are excited to hear from. So write to me at thatstotalmomsense at gmail.com. Remember, always trust your mom sense and dad sense. Stay strong, super parents. I'll see you next time. That's total mom sense.